From Pacifica Network, this is Democracy Now! Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. (laughs) Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Former President Ronald Reagan dies at the age of 93. While most of the country and media focus on Reagan the man, we'll look at the policies and history of the Reagan era. From Iran-Contra to nuclear weapons to the bloody conflicts in Central America, we'll talk with Noam Chomsky, Helen Caldicott, who met with Reagan in the Oval Office over the issue of nuclear annihilation. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. And we'll speak with investigative journalist Robert Parry, whose reporting led to the exposure of the Iran-Contra scandal. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Saturday, former President Ronald Reagan died after suffering for more than a decade from the mind-destroying illness, Alzheimer's disease. He was 93 years old. Services honoring the former president will take place in Washington, D.C., and California, spanning five days. Today, his family is gathering for private services at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Afterward, the body will lie in repose at the library through Tuesday for public visitation. The body will be flown to Washington on Wednesday, where it will lie in state in the rotunda of the Capitol for public viewing through the night and all day Thursday. The federal government will be closed Friday to honor the former president. The funeral service will take place at the National Cathedral. Reagan's body will be returned to California later that day for burial at the Ronald Reagan presidential. Library. Today we'll spend the hour taking a look at the Reagan presidency with Noam Chomsky, Helen Caldicott, and Bob Perry, whose reporting led to the exposure of the Iran-Contra scandal. In Iraq, at least 20 people died in a pair of car bombings on Sunday. South of Baghdad, a bombing killed at least 11 police officers in an attack on an Iraqi police station. North of Baghdad, nine Iraqis were killed, another 30 injured in a car bombing outside a U.S. airbase. In another attack on a U.S. base, one American was killed in Balad. This came two days after five U.S. soldiers were killed in Sadr City. For the second time in a week, the U.S. has announced a ceasefire has been reached with Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, who met over the weekend with the country's leading Shiite leader, Ayatollah Sistani. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Times is now reporting 800 Iraqis living in the section of Baghdad known as Sadr City have been killed in fighting over the last few months. On the governing front, the country's new prime minister, Iyad Alawi, who's a former Ba'athist with ties to the CIA, lashed out at the U.S. for disbanding Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist army. 
police and security forces. He's expected to soon announce some Ba'ath Party members will be allowed to begin working again for the government. Meanwhile, Iraq's president, Ghazi Yawar, will make his first trip to the United States as president this week to attend the G8 summit on Sea Island, Georgia, where attendees will consider passing a resolution calling for more democratic reforms in the Arab world. The New York Times reports most Arab nations, with the exception of Qatar, have been invited to attend the summit. The Qatar snub is the latest chapter in an ongoing battle over the Qatar-based satellite news channel Al Jazeera, which the U.S. claims incites anti-American violence in Iraq. One diplomat said, quote, it's strange having a summit declaration on democratic reforms and not inviting a country because it has a free press. In other Iraq news, the London Telegraph is reporting an arrest warrant has been issued for the American consultant Francis Brooke, who's worked for years with Ahmed Chalabi and the Iraqi National Congress. An Iraqi judge said Brooke had tried to stop a recent raid on Chalabi's headquarters. Brooke, who is believed to be back in Washington, boasted in a recent interview with The New Yorker that he helped engineer the war on Iraq by providing the United States with the evidence it was seeking on weapons of mass destruction. He told the magazine, quote, I'm a smart man. I saw what they wanted and I adapted my strategy. The INC has been widely accused of passing fabricated intelligence to the U.S. government and major media outlets, including the New York Times. Meanwhile, the Baltimore Sun has revealed employees of the private military firm DynCorp oversaw the raid that was carried out on Chalabi's headquarters by Iraqi police with U.S. support. Members of Chalabi's INC had previously said armed Americans in civilian clothes directed the Iraqi police on what rooms to go into and what items to take. The State Department has given DynCorp $50 million to provide 1,000 advisors to help organize Iraqi law enforcement and criminal justice systems. The, uh, there are an estimated 20,000 contract security workers in Iraq. A recent report by the Senate Armed Services Committee predicts the number could more than triple in the next several months. On Saturday, four employees of the North Carolina-based security company Blackwater USA were killed in an ambush. Over the weekend, the U.S. released 320 more prisoners from the Abu Ghraib prison. This came as more news reports emerged that the incidents of torture recently captured on film at Abu Ghraib were not isolated events, but part of a new Pentagon policy on dealing with detainees. The Wall Street Journal is reporting it's obtained a classified Bush administration report that concluded the president wasn't bound by laws prohibiting torture and that government agents who might torture prisoners at his direction couldn't be prosecuted by the Justice Department. The advice was part of a classified report on interrogation methods prepared for Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld after commanders at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, complained in late 2002 that with conventional methods, they weren't getting enough information from prisoners. The report claimed that on national security grounds, the president could approve the use of almost any physical or psychological action during the interrogation, including torture. In addition, the report advised 
that torture or homicide could be justified as self-defense should an official, quote, honestly believe it was necessary to head off an imminent attack on the United States. In Saudi Arabia, two BBC journalists were shot Sunday in a gun battle near Riyadh. Simon Cumbers, an an Irish cameraman for the BBC, was killed. BBC security correspondent Frank Gardner was seriously injured. They were filming the house of a member of al-Qaeda who was killed last year. Gardner is one of the BBC's foremost experts on al-Qaeda. In Italy, the country's largest electric company cut off power to two left-wing radio stations just as they were preparing to broadcast coverage of the protest against President Bush on Friday. This according to a report by Media Channel. The electric company, which is partly state-owned, claimed the power outage was due to maintenance work, but it forced the two stations off the air for four hours. Green Party ministers have called for a parliamentary inquiry into the power outage. Protesters estimate 250,000 people took to the streets against Bush in Italy. In radio news in this country, Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy and Republican John McCain have introduced legislation that could allow the formation of thousands of new low-power FM radio stations across the country. The New York Times is reporting federal prosecutors recently questioned Vice President Dick Cheney as part of their investigation into who outed the identity of CIA agent Valerie Plame in apparent retaliation for public criticism of the invasion of Iraq by her husband, Ambassador Joseph Wilson. Cheney was not brought before the grand jury and was not questioned under oath. In his recent book, Wilson identified Cheney's chief of staff, Scooter Libby, as one possible source of the leak. An Israeli court has sentenced a popular Palestinian leader who was once seen as a possible successor to Palestinian Authority President Yasser Arafat to life in prison. Marwan Barghouti was convicted last month of five killings. He rejected the sentence, saying, quote, the Israeli courts are a partner to the Israeli occupation. The judges are just like pilots who fly planes and drop bombs, he said. In other news from Israel, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's cabinet has approved a watered-down plan for Israel to dismantle Jewish settlements in Gaza. And the FBI has confirmed that it failed to act on a tip from a British man a year before September 11th that al-Qaeda was planning a large-scale attack in the United States. The 29-year-old man approached the FBI in Newark, New Jersey, and told them he'd been trained as a hijacker for Osama bin Laden and had been taught the layout of the cockpit on a Boeing commercial plane. After questioning, the FBI allowed him to leave the country voluntarily. And according to the Independent of London, no action was taken beyond placing his name on a no-flies-it list. The FBI claims it couldn't substantiate his claims even though he passed a lie detector test. It wasn't until after September 11, 2001, that U.S. officials tried to recontact him.
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report, broadcasting on over 220 Pacifica radio stations, NPR stations, public access TV stations, now on PBS and on Free Speech TV, channel 9415 of DISH Network. I'm Amy Goodman. On Saturday, former President Ronald Reagan died after suffering for more than a decade from the mind-destroying illness, Alzheimer's disease. He was 93 years old. This week is expected to be dominated by services honoring and remembering Reagan. Services honoring him will take place in Washington, D.C. and California over this five days. Today, his family is gathering for private services at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Afterward, the body will lie in repose at the library through Tuesday for public visitation. The body will be flown to Washington on Wednesday, where it will lie in state in the rotunda of the Capitol for public viewing through the night and all day Thursday. On Friday morning, Reagan's body will be taken by motorcade through Washington to the National Cathedral for funeral services, expected to be attended by numerous heads of state, some of whom are in the country for this week's G8 Economic Summit on Sea Island, Georgia. President Bush will deliver the principal eulogy, unclear who else will speak. That afternoon, the body will be returned to California for a private funeral and burial at the library. It's the, sesh, the ceremony is planned for sunset. Ronald Reagan served as president through much of the nuclear race between the United States and the Soviet Union, as well as the Cold War. He defeated President Jimmy Carter in a 1980 election that was marked by the secret arms for hostage deal. Reagan left office on a high note on January 20, 1989. The last Gallup poll on his presidency gave him a 63% approval rating, the highest for any departing president since FDR. Throughout his career, President Reagan was known as a vehement anti-communist, labeling popular movements against military regimes throughout Central America and Africa as part of a communist menace. He even labeled Nelson Mandela's African National Congress a notorious terrorist organization. Perhaps his most famous quote came on June 12, 1987, in front of the Brandenburg Gate near the Berlin Wall. If you seek liberalization... Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Among Republicans and other conservatives, Reagan's presidency is remembered as a revolution. Current President George Bush has evoked his name consistently throughout his time in power. The network and newspaper coverage of his death has brought forth a chorus of praise from Democrats and Republicans alike. Much of the reporting and commentary has represented a dramatic revision of the history of the Reagan years in office. This is what we will look at today on Democracy Now!, the policies of the Reagan administration and the history of his years in power. Today we will speak with Noam Chomsky, one of the one of America's best-known dissidents, uh, authors, uh, author of um, scores of books, his latest, Hegemony or Survival. We'll also speak with veteran journalist Robert Perry. For years, he worked as an investigative reporter for Associated Press and Newsweek. His reporting led to the exposure of what's now called the Iran-Contra scandal. And Helen Caldicott, 
one of the world's most respected anti-nuclear doctors, founder and of Physicians for Social Responsibility and Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament. Uh, she met with Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office in 1983 to talk to him about nuclear annihilation. She was brought in by President Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis. We go first to Helen Caldicott in Sydney, Australia. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Dr. Caldicott. Thank you, Amy. It's very good to have you with us. Uh, Dr. Caldicott has just founded a new organization called the Nuclear Policy Research Institute. Can you talk about your meeting with President Reagan and about those years of the Reagan presidency uh, as it relates to nuclear weapons? Yes, um, I was extremely concerned throughout those years that we were getting closer and closer to nuclear war. And one of the reasons I left my practice at Harvard Medical School treating cystic fibrosis children was because I felt that all the world's children were at great risk. I, um, he spent more money than all past presidents combined on weapons. He spent $3 trillion dollars during his time of office and left huge debt. So he was a very much uh, a military president um, and was keen about nuclear weapons. So what happened was I was asked to give a speech at the Playboy Mansion before a group of film stars along with Paul Newman. And I did that because there was a book being excerpted in Playboy called With Enough Shovels by Robert Shearer about the civil defense program and uh, and T.K. Jones from FEMA said, if there are enough shovels to go around, we're all going to make it. So I gave rather an emotional talk and said, we're the only life in the universe we think. Go out tonight and look at the stars and ponder what responsibility that means. Up came a tall, thin woman with long black hair, and she said, I'm Patty Davis. She said, I think you're the only person on earth who can change my father's mind about nuclear war. Will you come and see him? So I did a quick think, and I said, yes, I'll come and see him, but I won't, don't want anyone else there. I don't want Ed Meese or Baker or Diva. I want him alone. So two days later, she called me and said, we've got an hour at the end of his working day. And I said, what time is that? She said, four o'clock. So we met in a French restaurant for lunch. We had lunch um, and then swept into the southern portico in the Secret Service car. We entered the downstairs library of the White House in which there was not a single book. We waited for some time and in came the president. I was quite nervous. He was too. Um, he was a little dithery. I went and shook his hand and said, how do you do, Mr. President? Then he didn't know where to sit, and there was a table at the back of the room, and I said, you sit there, and I'll sit here. Paddy was present throughout the meeting, but said nothing. Um, I introduced myself by saying, you probably don't know who I am, and he said, yes, I do. You're an Australian. You were on the beach when you were a young girl, and you're scared of nuclear war, and I said, yes, that's right. He said, well, I too am scared of nuclear war, but I ways to prevent it differ. I believe in building more bombs. So we were off to a great start. I'd just finished my book, Missile Envy, so I was absolutely full of facts and figures. He would make a statement um, which was wrong. Um, everything he said was incorrect and inaccurate. So I would stop him when he'd said what he said and correct him. And you remember when he used to get flustered, his cheeks would flush. We call that in medicine a malar flush. So I would hold his hand to reassure him and we'd get on to the next topic. And I've 
I've reported this in my autobiography, A Desperate Passion. We met for an hour and a quarter um, at a certain point, and I spent half the time actually holding his hand. We, we really established a doctor-patient relationship, um, me being the doctor. Um, halfway through the interview, he, he said, look, I took some notes before I came down. He pulled um, some handwritten notes out of his top pocket and read to me that people who worked for the nuclear weapons freeze which at that time was 80% of the U.S. population supported the freeze, were either KGB dupes or Soviet agents. And I said, that's from last month's Reader's Digest, John Barron's piece. He said, no, it's from my intelligence files. And Patty later reassured me that that was one and the same thing, that he'd virtually never read a book, or very few, but he religiously subscribed to the Reader's Digest every month all his life. At one point, she said... Dad, I know that what Dr. Caldercott is saying is correct because I have a 1982 Pentagon document to prove it. And without looking at it, he said, that's a forgery. Uh, I think it was one of the most shocking experiences of my life. Um, he was clever, though. I decided that if there was no point, or if I was not going to meet with him again and I could have no influence, that I would talk to the press, who were hungry to hear exactly what this man was about. I spent more time with him alone than any other person during his eight years of office. Um, but he leaned towards me during the end of the interview and said, look, I'm not going to talk to anyone about this. And I gratuitously said I won't either. Um, and then eventually a journalist um, trapped me and said, look, I just want some background. And I naively gave the background. And so the piece was printed I then wrote and apologised to him, and he wrote me a very nice letter back saying, look, once I'm used to the press, once they were gentlemen, and now they're not, and they don't follow the rules and obligations of journalists, which was very sweet. I thought he was a, he was a sweet old man. He um, was not appropriate at all to be the President of the United States, and I, I guess I clinically estimated his IQ as one does with a patient um, to make sure that they take their medicines on time and the like. Um, I don't think um, my clinical assessment was that he did not have Alzheimer's at the time, um, nor was it impending clinically. Um, I spoke to people, a lot of people who knew him in Hollywood and said he was the most boring man they'd ever knew, but... Uh, but he was always like that, so I don't, I don't think it was anything different. So I used to call him the Pied Piper of Armageddon because people followed him wherever he went and he'd say, look, we'll just take you back to the past. And so he was a sort of father figure who engendered confidence and, and, and much affection within the American populace, uh, but to their detriment and to the detriment of the world. However... I thought I had no influence at all, but through the retrospectoscope, I, I now think that maybe I did because when he met with Gorbachev in Reykjavik, the most momentous meeting that two men in the history of the human race have ever had, they almost agreed to eliminate nuclear weapons between Russia and America. Um, and Gorbachev and Reagan got hung up on Star Wars. But after that, he and Gorbachev worked together um, and Shevardnadze and Schultz turned into great statesmen. And I think together um, they helped to bring about the end of the Cold War, which was a magnificent achievement, and I credit both of them for that. Um, 
But since the Cold War ended, nothing's changed. Everyone needs to know that America and Russia still target each other with 2,500 hydrogen bombs on hair trigger alerts. So, in fact, nothing has changed except the animosity has disappeared and the two countries are friends, but they still hold the world um, as as a nuclear hostage ready to blow us up any second of any day. Dr. Helen Caldicott speaking to us from Sydney, Australia. When she met with President Reagan, the Oval Office, she was head of Physicians for Social Responsibility. She's established a new organization now called Nuclear Policy Research Institute. Her new book is called The New Nuclear Danger. This is Democracy Now! When we return, Noam Chomsky, stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. When we look back at the Reagan presidency, we don't actually have to look back. Many of the same people who populated his administration are in the George W. Bush administration as well. James Baker, Elliot Abrams, Paul Wolfowitz, Colin Powell, John Poindexter, John Negroponte, just to name a few. We're joined on the telephone right now by political analyst, critic, Noam Chomsky, professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author of scores of books. His latest is Hegemony or Survival. Welcome to Democracy Now! Noam. Hi. It's good to have you with us. Um, Can you talk about this? The people that are now running the administration are the very people who ran the Reagan administration more than 20 years ago. That's quite true. The Reagan administration is either the same people or their immediate mentors for the most part. Uh, And uh, I, I think one can say that the current administration is a selection of the more extremist and uh, arrogant and violent and dangerous elements of the uh, uh, Reagan administration. So things like, um, it's true both on domestic and international policy, they're both in the Reagan years and now they're committed to dismantling the uh, components of the government that serve the general population, Social Security, probably schools and so on and so forth. Uh, but more in a more extreme fashion now, 
partly because they think they've achieved a sort of higher stage from which to launch the attack. Uh, and internationally, well, it's pretty obvious. Uh, in fact, many of the uh, older Reaganites and Bush number one people uh, have been uh, concerned, even appalled by the extremism of the uh, current administration in the international domain. That's why there was such unprecedented uh, elite criticism of uh, the national security strategy and the implementation in Iraq. Narrow criticism, but significant. Uh, so yes, they're there. In fact, you can't... Uh, and some of the examples are remarkable, including the ones you mentioned. Mm. Uh, and very timely. Texas Negroponte. Uh, Negroponte has, has, of course, just been appointed and uh, the uh, new uh, ambassador to Iraq, where he will head the uh, biggest uh, diplomatic mission in the world. Uh, the pretense is that, uh, that we need this huge diplomatic mission to uh, 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 transfer full sovereignty to uh, Iraqis. I mean, that's so close to self-contradiction that, that uh, you have to uh, admire uh, commentators who sort of pretend not to notice what it means. Uh, also, uh, uh, who overlook uh, consciously uh, what his role was in the Reagan administration. Uh, he uh, he also provided, he was an ambassador in the Reagan years, or uh, ambassador to Honduras, where he presided over the uh, uh, biggest uh, CIA station in the world, uh, not because and the second largest embassy in Latin America, and not because Honduras was of any particular significance to the U.S., uh, but because he was uh, responsible for supervising the the bases from which the uh, U.S. mercenary army was attacking in Nicaragua, and which ended up practically destroying it. Um, by now, Nicaragua's uh, be lucky to survive a few generations. Uh, that was a, 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 a one part of the uh, a massive uh, international terrorist campaign that the Reaganites carried out in the 1980s uh, under the pretense that they were fighting a war on terror. They declared a war on terror in 1981 with pretty much the same rhetoric uh, that they used when they redeclared it in September 2001. Uh, and it uh, was a murderous terrorist war. It uh, devastated Central America, had horrendous effects elsewhere in the world. In the case of Nicaragua, the, it was so extreme that uh, they were condemned by the World Court uh, by two supporting Security Council resolutions that uh, the U.S. had to veto, uh, the, uh, after which, of course, and of course, they rejected the court judgment and then... Uh, escalated the war to the point where uh, finally uh, where the effects were extraordinary. I mean, by their own, by the analysis of their own specialists, the uh, per capita uh, deaths in Nicaragua uh, would be comparable to about two and a half million in the United States, which, as they've pointed out, is greater than the total number of casualties in all U.S. wars, including the Civil War and all wars in the uh, 20th century. And uh, what's left of the society is a wreck. It's, uh, since the U.S. took over again, it's gone even more downhill. Now the second poorest in the hemisphere after Haiti. Uh, 
and not coincidentally the second major target of U.S. intervention in the 20th century after Haiti, which is first uh, recent uh, uh, health administ- uh, uh, administration statistics show that uh, about 60% of children under two are suffering from uh, severe anemia caused by malnutrition and probable brain damage. About half the uh, uh, working age population is abroad, uh, Costa Rica, United States, uh, trying to doing enough uh, um, low-level work so they can send back some remittances to keep uh, the families alive. It's a real victory. You can understand why Colin Powell and others are so proud of it. But Negroponte was uh, in charge of it in the first half of the decade directly, and the second half more indirectly in the State Department and the National Security Staff, where he was Powell's advisor. Uh, And uh, now he's... uh, 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 is supposed to uh, undertake the same role and uh, similar role in Iraq. Uh, he was called in Nicaragua the proconsul, and uh, after the Wall Street Journal was honest enough to uh, run an article in which they headlined the modern proconsul, on which they mentioned his background in Nicaragua without going into it much, and said, "Yes, he'll be the proconsul of Iraq." Well, that's a direct continuity, but there's a lot more than that. Uh, and what you mentioned is correct. I mean, Elliot Abrams is an extreme case. I mean, he's now in head of the head of the uh, uh, Middle East section of the National Security Council. Uh, he was, uh, as you know, he was uh, sentenced for lying to Congress, uh, got a presidential pardon, uh, but he was one of them. The most he was he, he was uh, uh, in charge of, uh, in the State Department of the Central American atrocities, uh, and uh, on the Middle East he's uh, way out at the extreme end of the uh, spectrum, uh, and this uh, does reflect the uh, in a way the continuity of policies, but also the shift towards extremism within that continuity. There was uh, very little uh, critical comment about uh, President Reagan this weekend uh, on his death, uh, perhaps explained by his death, uh, what happens when a person dies and what people say, or perhaps also um, because there is a kind of rewriting of history that has been going on. But one of the few people who were quoted in the mainstream media was the Mexican foreign minister, uh, Jorge, the former Mexican foreign minister, Jorge Castaneda, whose father served as foreign minister um, as well, 1979 uh, to 1982, said Reagan was extremely unpopular in Mexico when he was president because of his policies in Central America and what was viewed in Mexico as a Mexico-bashing campaign over drug trafficking. Reagan's involvement in Nicaragua and El Salvador viewed in Mexico, he said, as unwarranted meddling that was, quote, interventionist, rooted in Cold War rivalries, and disrespectful of international law. Castaneda continued, not only were his policies viewed negatively, but he pressured Mexico enormously to change its foreign policies. Uh, that's correct. Uh, 
Castaneda is being diplomatic. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, he, he's understating with regard to international law and with regard to the intervention. Uh, it was. Uh, I mean, it ended up with a couple hundred thousand people being killed and four countries uh, ruined. Uh, the uh, and uh, even a world. The, the U.S. The people now in office in Washington have the unique uh, uh, honor of being the only ones in the world who have been condemned by the World Court for international terrorism. Uh, what was it's a little more than what he said, but that's what he's aiming at. Uh, the unpopularity continues. Uh, the latest figures show that uh, George, um, this George Bush, number two, uh, latest Latin American figures among Latin American elites, the ones who are tend to be more supportive of the United States. I think it was about uh, close to 90% opposition throughout the hemisphere and approximately, if I remember, 98% opposition to him in uh, in, in Mexico. Uh, but uh, to be accurate, we should say that this goes way back. Uh, so John F. Kennedy was tried very hard to uh, uh, get Mexico to line up in his... Uh, anti-Cuba crusade. Uh, there was a famous comment by a Mexican foreign minister when Kennedy tried to uh, convince him that Cuba was to join in the terrorist war against Cuba and the economic embargo, strangulation, in fact, on the grounds that uh, Cuba was a uh, threat to the security of the hemisphere. And the Mexican ambassador said he had to decline, foreign minister had to decline because uh, if he uh, tried to tell people in Mexico that uh, Cuba was a security threat, uh, 40, 40 million Mexicans would die laughing, uh, which is approximately the right answer uh, here. Not so. Uh, the one point on which I think Castaneda's comment that you quote is um, really misleading uh, is when he refers to Cold War uh, thinking and rivalries. Um, there were no Russians in Latin America. In fact, the U.S. was trying very hard to bring them in. Uh, take, say, Nicaragua. Uh, when the terrorist war against Nicaragua really took off, uh, Nicaragua tried to uh, get some uh, military aid to defend itself. And they went first to European countries, France, others. Uh, the Reagan administration put extreme pressure on them uh, not to send military aid because they were desperately eager for Nicaragua to get uh, military aid from uh, Russia or indirectly through Cuba, so they could then present it as a Cold War issue. Uh, Nicaragua didn't fall into the trap as Guatemala had in 1954, same, basically same scenario. Uh, so they didn't get uh, jet planes from uh, uh, Russia to defend their airspace against uh, U.S. attacks. They had every right to do it, but even a responsibility to do it, but they understood the consequences. So the Reagan administration had to float constant uh, stories about uh, how uh, Nicaragua was getting MiG uh, jets from uh, uh, from Russia in order to try to create a Cold War conflict. Actually, it's very revealing to see the reaction here to those stories. Of course, Nicaragua had, had every right to do it. Uh, the uh, CIA had, and, and had complete control over Nicaragua's airspace and was using it. It was using it uh, to send uh, 
instructions to the uh, guerrilla army, which was guerrilla is a funny word for it, but computers, helicopters, and so on, uh, to tra- send them instructions so that they could uh, follow the U.S. command orders to avoid the Sandinist army, the Nicaraguan army, and to attack uh, what are called soft targets, undefended civilian targets. Uh, now, you know, if, if a country doesn't have a right to defend its airspace to protect that, uh, I don't know what you can say. So obviously they had a right to do it, but they didn't. They allowed the U.S. to have control of the airspace and uh, to attack, uh, to use it to attack undefended targets. Noam Chomsky, you've written about uh, the U.S. as being the only country in the world to be convicted in the world court of terrorism, and this had to do with the bombing of the Nicaraguan harbor, which took place under Reagan. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that too is a little misleading. Nicaragua was hoping to end the uh, confrontation through um, legal means through diplomatic means. I mean the mining of the yes, harbors. Yes, mining of the harbors. And uh, they decided to, uh, 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 they asked a, uh, uh, a legal team headed by a very distinguished American uh, international lawyer, Abe Chase, professor of law at Harvard, who had long government service. And that legal team decided to construct an extremely narrow case so they kept to matters that were totally uncontroversial because the U.S. conceded them, like the mining of the harbors. Uh, but that was only a, you know, a toothpick on a mountain. They picked the narrowest point in the hope that they could get a judgment from the world court which would uh, lead the United States to uh, back off from the whole international terrorist campaign. And they did win a judgment from the court which ordered the U.S. to terminate uh, any actions, uh, any uh, violent actions against Nicaragua, uh, which went way beyond mining of the harbors. That was the least of it. Uh, So yes, that was the narrow content of the court decision, although if you read the decision, the court decision, it goes well beyond. Uh, They're all, of course, conscious of the much wider uh, terrorist campaign, but the uh, Harvard the Chase Run legal team didn't uh, bring it up for good reasons. They want, didn't want any controversy at the court hearings about the facts, and there was no controversy about that since it was conceded. Uh, however, it, it should be read as a much broader indictment uh, and, and a very important one. I mean, the term that was used by the court was uh, unlawful use of force, which is the technical term for the informal notion international terrorism. There's no legal definition of international terrorism in the uh, international domain. So but it was, in effect, a condemnation of international terrorism over a much broader, uh, uh, a much broader uh, uh, domain. However, we should bear in mind, it's important for us, that horrible as the Nicaragua War was, it wasn't the worst. Uh, Guatemala and El Salvador were worse. Uh, it's just that in in Nicaragua, uh, the, and the reason was that in Nicaragua, the population at least had an army to defend it. Uh, in El Salvador and Guatemala, the terrorist forces attacking the population were the army and the other security forces. And there was no one to bring a case to the world court that can be brought by governments, not by you know peasants being slaughtered. Professor 
Chomsky, we have to break. And when we come back, we will also be joined by Bob Perry, Robert Perry, who reports for AP and Newsweek, whose reporting led to the expose of the Iran-Contra scandal. We're speaking with Professor Noam Chomsky of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author, among many other books, of Hegemony or Survival. Stay with us. John Coltrane here on Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. news media's reaction to Ronald Reagan's death is putting on display what has happened to American public debate in the years since Reagan's political rise in the late 70s, a near total collapse of serious analytical thinking at the national level. Uh, So begins Robert Perry's latest piece at consortiumnews.com called Raiding Reagan, a bogus legacy. Uh, Robert Perry, a veteran journalist for years, he worked as an investigative reporter for both the Associated Press and Newsweek magazine. His reporting led to the exposure of what's now known as the Iran-Contra scandal. Before we go to Robert Perry, Noam Chomsky still on the line with us, we thought we'd go to President Reagan as the Iran-Contra scandal was breaking. We did not repeat, did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages, nor will we. That was President Reagan in 1986, but his statements changed a few months later. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. President Reagan in 1986. Investigative reporter Robert Parry, especially for listeners, for viewers who were kids or not even born at the time, explain the Iran-Contra scandal, please. Well, Amy, the the Iran-Contra scandal really comes out of a couple of different initiatives that the uh, Reagan administration was following. One was, as Dr. Chomsky mentioned, the the war in Nicaragua, which um, had to be done with a great deal of deception surrounding it because uh, Congress had opposed much of that effort. Uh, The international community had opposed much of that effort. So the uh, Reagan administration essentially took it underground with the work of people like Elliot Abrams and Oliver North and John Poindexter. So on one side, there was this effort to maintain support for the Contras uh, who were engaged in fighting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, on the other side, there had been a fairly long-running policy, which 
we've sort of at least traced back now to 1981 of, of secretly helping the Iranian government arm itself. Um, that was in the context of the Iran-Iraq war, where the United States policy became, became basically to secretly support both sides, uh, both the uh, Iranian fundamentalist government of Khomeini and the more secular government of uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So you had, you had those, kind of, those two policies running in parallel form. And then when the, uh, the financing for the Contras became more and more problematic, the Reagan administration uh, decided to use some of the profits from selling arms to the Iranians to help support the Contras. So that became known as the Iran-Contra scandal when it finally broke. And what about the context for this taking place? I wanted to play for you um, Ed Meese, the former attorney general, who is the one who broke um, to the national media um, the Reagan administration's admission of what had taken place. He was interviewed yesterday on Wolf Blister's late edition on CNN. This is former Reagan Attorney General Edwin Meese. Association or a relationship with the moderate forces in Iran, and part of the agreement to show good faith was to provide some defensive weapons for them. Uh, separately from that, we had the support of the freedom fighters. And when you had some people in the White House that unauthorized uh, took uh, some of the uh, profits from the sale of arms to Iran and diverted them to the support of the freedom fighters, that was the problem. He then went on to say, and I'd like to continue this quote uh, of Edwin Mace, just to bring it right back up, to talk about uh, President uh, Reagan, what he did in terms of his admission. This is, again, former Attorney General Edwin Mace. The president, what had happened, and he immediately said, Ed, we've got to get this out to the American people as quickly as we can. And so what he did was he uh, called the cabinet first, and we had a meeting in which it was revealed to the cabinet. An hour later, he brought in the congressional leaders and presented the whole picture to them. And then at noon, uh, brought the, uh, the press together, had a press conference, and he introduced the subject. And then he was actually entertaining the Supreme Court for lunch that day. He had to excuse himself to do that. And he asked me then to explain the details uh, to the press corps. It was something that he knew nothing about while it was going on in terms of the uh, unauthorized activity and uh, which he was was uh, quick to make sure that all the facts came out to the public. And I think that in itself uh, probably saved uh, his presidency, at least uh, enabled him to continue to be a successful president over the next two years, which were critical in ultimately our relationship with the Soviet Union and ending the Cold War. Former Reagan Attorney General Edwin Meese, your response, Bob Perry. Well, that really isn't quite true. The, um, uh, it is true that, they, that, the, uh, that Edwin Meese uh, put out at a press conference in November of 1986 the, the basic facts that, that Oliver North and the team he was working with made this transfer of money from the, the Iran shipments of weapons to the Contras. However, the, what happened after that was simply a replacing of the original cover-up, which had been to protect Oliver North, to making him the fall guy and, and essentially imposing a second cover-up, uh, which was designed to protect uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Vice President George Bush, the Central Intelligence Agency, and other entities of the administration that had been deeply involved in this operation in, in, a very, in various ways. We, it took a lot more work, both from some of us in the press 
and most significantly by uh, Lawrence Walsh, who was the special prosecutor um, who investigated the Iran-Contra scandal, to break through many, many of these barriers. Uh, Lawrence Walsh, who was a patrician Republican, if we remember, uh, uh, named his book on this topic Firewall. And the reason he used the name, the title Firewall, was because uh, a firewall had been built to protect Ronald Reagan, George Bush Sr., and other elements of the administration from the spread of the scandal. Uh, we, we learned later, as this thing played out, that there was a, uh, that the CIA was, remained directly involved in these operations, really through to the end. So it wasn't a case of just Oliver North and a few uh, men of zeal taking action. It was a case of an administration essentially bringing the policy underground, and then when it was exposed in part, just replacing it with a new cover-up. And Robert Perry, today, the kind of discussion we're hearing over the last few days, which is more than the discussion of a man who has just died, but uh, talking about, which is a rewriting of, this is the historical record. Can you talk about this discussion, whether it is in Central America or whether it's the discussion of President Reagan winning the Cold War? Well, I think in essence, Amy, what we've seen here is a continuation in this in this administration of some of the approaches that became um, that, that really came became very prominent in the in the Reagan administration. First, there's the manipulating of intelligence, uh, exaggerating dangers that that occurred both in a strategic level with the Soviet Union trying to present the Soviet Union as as much more aggressive and powerful and effective than it than it turned out to be. It was a country on the verge of collapse. Uh, then also exaggerating the threats from places like Nicaragua, which were you know third world countries that were very much on the defensive, and, and they were presented as threats to the United States. This was a systematic falsification of U.S. intelligence, and occurred at the CIA. The analytical division of the CIA was virtually destroyed during that period of the 1980s under Bill Casey and Robert Gates. This was very important because at before then, then there was much more independence within the CIA's analytical division. Afterwards, there became a, um, the CIA became basically a uh, conveyor belt for propaganda. We've seen that re- reoccur now with the Iraq situation when, again, intelligence was falsified, uh, the threats were exaggerated, and then policies were put together to respond to those exaggerated threats. Um, we've, we've just seen the continuation of some very uh, deceptive approaches to government and many of the people that took part in them, as uh, I think your first caller mentioned and, and, and Dr. Chomsky mentioned, were, were the same people involved today. And they've just continued to follow the same policies. There was also an important element of this, which goes to the idea of perception management, which was a concept that was put in place during the early 80s. And the basic idea was that if you manage the perceptions of the American people about various events, particularly foreign events, that you can then take actions that are perhaps that would not be supported by the American people if seen in their full context. What we've seen with that was the idea that if you, if the people of the United States perceive Nicaragua to be a threat to their security, they would support uh, the sending of weapons and supporting the Contras. Um, if they saw the, the Sandinistas as being what they were, basically a, a struggling little government um, in Nicaragua, they probably wouldn't. So you see, the, the problem has often been that in the case of um, these kinds of events, perception management became the rule. And that conti- that's continued to today with, uh, with Iraq. 
Professor Chomsky, I wouldn't want to end this discussion without talking about briefly, at least now, as we'll continue through the week more in depth, uh, the Reagan years and Africa, particularly Southern Africa. Uh, Well, the official policy was called constructive engagement. I recall that during the 80s, uh, by then there was enormous pressure uh, to uh, end all support for the apartheid government. Uh, It was uh, Congress... uh, passed legislation barring uh, uh, trade and aid, uh, the Reagan administration found ways to evade the congressional legislation. And in fact, uh, uh, trade with uh, uh, South Africa increased in the latter part of the decade. This is incidentally the period when uh, Colin Powell moved to uh, the position of national security advisor. Uh, The... uh, the uh, U.S. was strongly supporting South, uh, South, the apartheid regime directly and then indirectly through uh, allies. So, for example, Israel was helping uh, get around the embargo and so on. Rather, as in Central America, where the clandestine terror uh, made use of uh, other states that uh, served as, uh, uh, that helped the administration get around congressional legislation. In the case of South Africa, you just look at the rough figures. Uh, 30 seconds. Uh, the, in Angola and Mozambique, the neighboring countries, in those countries alone, uh, South African depredations killed about a million and a half people and led to uh, some $60 billion in damage during the period of constructive engagement with U.S. support. It was a horror story. I want to thank you for being with us, Professor Noam Chomsky, speaking to us from Massachusetts, Robert Parry from the Washington, D.C. area, his website, Consortium News, and also Noam Chomsky's new website is www.chomsky.info. And that does it for today's program. We'll continue to look at the Reagan legacy throughout the week. Democracy Now! produced by Mike Berkshire, Fabdol Kadus, John Hamilton, Anna Nagar, Elizabeth Press, Jeremy Scahill, Mike DeFilippo is our engineer, our website, Democracy Now! Now.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.